doesn't take very long to become, for something to become obsolete. Doesn't take very long for something to become obsolete. For example, this is my phone. My phone is an iPhone 7. They just came out with the iPhone 12. Some might say that my phone is an antique and that it's obsolete. The truth of the matter is it, it still does work, but it may not be too long before it becomes unusable. And I know that because my first iPhone I had was an iPhone 4. And the phone still worked, but it could no longer receive updates. And the phone slowed down. And the battery wouldn't last a day, and I felt forced to buy a new phone. It was obsolete. Here's something else that has gotten obsolete. A cassette tape. They don't make these anymore, as far as I know. I got rid of my cassette deck a few years ago. That means that I can't play any cassettes of my own. So this cassette's kind of worthless to me. And then my next item is a vinyl album. This is an old Christmas album. It's called The Magic of Christmas. It's actually a double album, and it was one of the first, very first albums that I owned. And I think I was about 13 years old when I got it one year for Christmas. And so if my math is right, I was 13, so this album must be at least 25 years old. Not only can't I read the difference between NIV and ESV, I can't add. My last prop is something the younger crowd won't recognize. In fact, I couldn't even come up with one of these, so you're going to have to look at it on the screen. Does anybody know what that is? A floppy disk. A floppy disk stored computer data back in the day. They had an amazing capacity of 1.44 megabytes. Now you can store that much data on a speck of dust. The floppy disk is obsolete and completely unusable. When something becomes unusable and it becomes obsolete, that means it doesn't have value anymore, right? It happens to a lot of our stuff, especially these days our electronic stuff. But some would say that that happens to people as well. Maybe you're like me. I'm kind of old-fashioned. Now, I will say, I do enjoy new technology, and I typically embrace change, but I also love tradition. My values might be considered out of date. You see, I value faith, freedom, and family. I believe hard work is good. I'm not a fan of participation trophies. You earn respect and advancement. I believe we're called to love everyone. Period. I believe the Bible is true, which means that God created us man and women. He created marriage. All life is sacred, born and unborn. And all people are of equal and of great value to God. God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world because he loves us. God loves every one of us. Through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins. And I know that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, by placing our trust in him. Now, to some, those values are obsolete. They're out of touch. They might even be considered useless. I think many of you are like me. We beg to differ. Truth doesn't change. 
truth is always badly needed. A few minutes ago, Pastor David read about a woman named Anna. Anna would have been considered unusable by many in her time. And as you heard, her story is told in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. And Anna's story comes 16 verses after the birth narrative of Jesus. And there's a lot in those 16 verses. They begin with Jesus' circumcision eight days after his birth, according to Jewish custom. Next, Luke tells us that 40 days after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple. And there were two reasons, actually, for this trip. First, a woman was considered ceremonially unclean for 40 days after giving birth. As part of her purification, a sacrifice would be made. Now, normally, the couple would sacrifice a lamb. But Mary and Joseph were poor, so they sacrificed two turtle doves. Through the sacrifice, the priest made atonement for Mary, and she was declared clean. Now, the the second reason for that temple visit was to present baby Jesus to the Lord. God said to Moses in the Old Testament, Consecrate to me the firstborn. God was saying that a firstborn child was his. His parents would raise the child, but when devout Jewish parents presented their firstborn to God, they were setting that child apart for God's service. And it certainly seems appropriate that the Son of God would be consecrated to God, doesn't it? Then beginning in Luke 2, 25, there are ten verses about a man named Simeon. We learn that Simeon was a righteous man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simply put, Simeon was waiting for God to rescue his people. Simeon's words after seeing the baby Jesus are often called the nunc dimittis, the nunc dimittis, which is Latin for now you are dismissing. It refers to Simeon saying that he was ready to die since he had seen the coming of Christ. He was ready to be dismissed. Simeon's words, which are often called a song, represent the fourth and the last of the Christmas songs in the Gospel of Luke. The earlier songs are Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah's Benedictus, and the angels Glorious and Ex- uh, Gloria and Excelsis Deo. And then after Simeon's song, we meet Anna in verse 36. Anna didn't get a song. Anna only got three verses. The three verses of Anna's story are sometimes skipped by Bible commentators. Bible studies often fail to mention her. Fairly rarely is it that a sermon's preached on Anna. We might wonder, you know, why did Luke even bother? If he had admitted, omitted Anna's story from his gospel, would anyone have noticed Well, actually, Anna provides a message for Christmas that we need to hear. Anna's Christmas message consists of three teachings, three teachings on usefulness to God. And the first thing that we learn from Anna is actually key to the other two teachings. Through Anna, we see that God uses the unusable. God uses the unusable, and that is so important to realize, it's so important to embrace Now, if you think about Anna, there were several reasons why her culture would have viewed her as unusable. 
First, Anna was a woman. Women in those days were second-class citizens. In some cases, they were considered little more than the property of their husband. Next, Anna was older, 84 years old to be exact. Some might say her days of being useful were over. It was time for Anna just to sit back and take it easy. And then third, Anna had been a widow for many, many years. Luke wrote that she had been married for seven years. Women in those days married young. Anna may have been married as young as the age of 13 or maybe 15 years old. And that means Anna could have been a widow for nearly over 60 years when we meet her in Luke's gospel. Widows weren't much of much use in that society in the first century. To be a widow was often to live in poverty, especially if you had no children to care for you. And we don't know if Anna had children. Widows had it so bad that James, the son of uh, the brother of Jesus, challenged Christians. He wrote, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. People ignored widows. Others maybe had pity on widows. Anna was a woman, she was older, and she was a widow. In those days, that was three strikes against her. So seriously, why did Luke bother to tell us about Anna? I think it's actually clear if you think about it. In God's sight, we all have great value. We are equal. God uses people that the world would say are unusable. The only unusable people are the ones that say no to God. Anna said yes. Anna reminds me of a, a woman who was a member of this church. Some of you probably remember when I tell your name, her name was Mildred. And every Mil- Sunday, Mildred sat in about the same spot, about three quarters of the way back on my right, on your left. Mildred went home to be with the Lord about ten years ago. Mildred was a mom. I'm pretty sure she was a widow. Mildred dedicated her life to the Lord. She spent a lot of time reading the Bible until her eyesight began to fail. She was a prayer warrior. Mildred often had trouble sleeping at night, and so she would pray for whoever God put on her mind. She was part of an intercessory prayer team, and over time, many of the members of that team passed away. And when that team dissolved, Mildred could have decided that, you know what, her days of ministry were over. But that wouldn't have been Mildred. Mildred prayed, what now, Lord? And then the following Sunday in church, it was announced that we were forming a new prayer team. Mildred immediately joined and was a member of that team for the next 17 years. And every day over those 17 years, Mildred prayed. She prayed for whoever or whatever was on the prayer team's list. She prayed for her family. She prayed for this church. She prayed for her friends. She even prayed for me. She thanked God for His Son, Jesus Christ. And Mildred once told me, she said, you know, I can't do much of anything, but I can pray. And pray she did. 
Near the end of her life, Mildred wrote some parting words which I shared at her funeral. She said this. She said, this is not the end. It is the beginning. The best is yet to come. Jesus said, because I live, you too shall live. If you abide in me, you will live. See, Anna shows us that everyone is useful to God. And Mildred is an example who lived right here in this, among us in this church. And that brings us to the second lesson we learned from Anna, and that is to look for the useful treasure in everyone. People have value. People are useful to God. They can contribute. We just have to be willing to look. Imagine, imagine Luke doing his investigation as he prepared to write his gospel. Luke talked to probably every eyewitness that he could. He likely spoke to at least a few of the disciples. Luke probably talked to Jesus' mother Mary. He checked out their stories. His purpose was to write an orderly account of the things that had happened. I would have loved to have been there when Luke was told Anna's story. You know, I wondered, did he, did he write it down really quickly? Or was he maybe just a little bit unimpressed? We don't know. But we do know that the Holy Spirit inspired him to include Anna in his gospel. The Holy Spirit showed Luke the treasure that was in Anna. And we're to find the Annas in our life. They're everywhere. Don't just look for people like Simeon that we you read about just before Anna. Simeon is popular. He's in many commentaries and Bible studies, and he's been the subject of many after-Christmas sermons. And there's nothing wrong with Simeon. It's just like just that people like Simeon are obvious to everyone. It's, it's more challenging, perhaps, to see the value of someone like an Anna or maybe a Mildred. But you know what? It's worth the search we can be inspired by them. We can be, learn so much from the Annas and the Mildreds in our life. They can challenge us to grow in our faith. Society may have seen her as unusable, but Anna was special. Luke tells us that she was a, a prophetess. She was a woman who spoke for God. And such a role for women was rare. The Jewish people counted only seven prophetesses in the Old Testament. There are several more in the New Testament, but it was an uncommon calling for women at that time. Philip Ryken says that Anna had the rare privilege of knowing and proclaiming God's will for his people. Anna was the daughter of Phanuel. Phanuel means the face of God. Anna lived up to her father's name. She sought out God's face. Luke said she did not depart from the temple. This lady practically lived at church. Go to church on Sunday, Anna would be there. Go to church on midnight on a Wednesday, Anna would be there. If they would ever had three feet of snow, which I doubt, no problem, Anna would be at church. And she didn't just hang out at church. She worshipped. Anna spent her days and her nights on her knees. She praised God from the depths of her heart. Anna also fasted. You know, I've discovered most of us Christians don't fast these days, and I have to confess that I struggle with that myself. But fasting de demonstrates our dependence on God for our spiritual and our physical needs. 
It's been said that our physical hunger from fasting reminds us of our true need for God. Think about that. Instead of letting our hunger drive us to the cookie jar, as so often happens this time of year, we should let our hunger remind us of how much we depend on God. And my guess is if we did that, our spiritual life would be so much healthier. And as an added benefit, maybe we'd gain a few less pounds over Christmas. Anna also prayed. She prayed day and night. And as we get older, we might think that we can't do as much for the church, that we can't do as much for the kingdom of God. And that's just not true. Even if we do nothing else, we can pray. James 5.16 said the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You see, prayer is actually one of the most important things that we can do. The disciple Peter wrote, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Paul said to the church at Colossa, he said, Devote yourselves to prayer. Jesus prayed. Anna prayed. We pray. And because of her desire to seek God, Anna recognized the baby Jesus at the temple that day. God revealed the identity of his son. And Anna thanked God for the gift of salvation. Luke said she began to give thanks and speak of him. In other words, she didn't keep the birth of the Savior to herself. Like the shepherds who saw Jesus on the night of his birth, Anna was one of the first evangelists. She spoke of Jesus to others. Her life could be described in two words, worship and witness. And that brings us to the third teaching we can pull from Anna in this passage. This teaching, though, is actually more of a challenging question. It's a question that comes to each one of us, and that is, how can God use you? How can God use me? How can he use us? And I think Anna's life provides the big picture. Worship and witness. How you live out a life of worship and witness may look different from how I do it, or Pastor David does it, or your spouse or a family member does it. But those differences in how we live that life out show us that God uses different people in different ways. And worship and witness, they really go hand in hand. As we worship Jesus with our life, we are his witnesses. Worship and witness include prayer and praising God and fasting and serving others and telling people about Jesus and loving God and loving our neighbors. Actually, it's our life. Our life is worship. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the church in Rome. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he continued and he said, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In short, I think Paul was just saying, live for Christ. Just a couple days ago, we celebrated Jesus' birthday. And in his early life, Jesus lived in pretty much obscurity. He was born in a manger, 
worse than any rundown hotel. The only people who came to see him at his birth were some shepherds, lower class citizens. Now it is true later that Magi came from the east to bring him gifts. But if you think about it, after those two big moments, Jesus spent much of his first 30 years of life behind the scenes. There's one very significant mention of him during that time. At the age of 12, Luke tells us that Jesus was with the teachers at the temple. And his wisdom was on display. But after that, Jesus again disappeared from Scripture. We know Jesus grew up in a small town of Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't a New York City. It wasn't a Los Angeles or Chicago. In fact, when Jesus began his public ministry, Nathaniel sarcastically questioned. He said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus took up the trade of Joseph, carpentry. It wasn't a particularly glamorous profession. When Jesus began his public ministry, one of his first stops was his hometown. He read the scriptures in the synagogue, and then after reading, Jesus declared that he was the fulfillment of scripture. And his statement caused those people who knew him to question, is this Joseph's son? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? In other words, you could say they were saying, we know this guy. He's a nobody. Who does he think he is? And they rejected him. John's gospel tells us that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. They basically said, Jesus, get out of here, go somewhere where people can see your miracles, and you can become famous. So show yourself to the world. And I think those words reeked of the sarcasm that brothers can, de- can deliver so well. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, many would have considered him to be a nobody. And even during his ministry years, many people missed seeing who Jesus really is. And it still happens today. People need to open their eyes. Jesus is the Son of God, our Lord and Savior. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and then he rose again from the dead. He provides life today and eternal life in heaven. And to receive that, Jesus calls us to trust in him as Lord and Savior. And once we belong to Jesus, he calls us to worship him and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Jesus even went further. He promised that we wouldn't be alone. He said that he would be with us. And that means something very important to you and I. It means that we can't sit on the sidelines. We can't say, you know what, God, you can't use me. I have no value. I can't do anything for you. Because you know what? That is an excuse. It's a poor excuse. If God can use an 84-year-old widow woman in the first century, he can use you and me to further his kingdom. And so the question that demands an answer is, how will we worship and witness to Jesus Christ? God made us in his image with some very specific gifts and talents. And it really doesn't matter if we're 9 or 99. God can still use us in his kingdom. We pray. We talked about that a lot today. We pray. We can be a good friend. 
We reach out to the lonely and hurting. We give of our time, our treasure, and our talent. We listen. We invite others to church. We live a life of thanksgiving. We tell others about Jesus. And we, you and I, we can do all that. We can do all that and much more. We're going to close with a, a moment of silence, of silent prayer. And in that moment, I want each one of us to ask God how we can worship and witness to Him, to His Son in our life. And then ask Him to help you do it, because I know He will. Let's pray.